Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Embracing Enough podcast. I've always said that one thing is for sure, it's that women and girls have some incredible stories to tell. And that's what we do here. We share our stories in the hope that it allows others to feel seen, to feel heard, and hopefully less alone. This is your host, Dina Skippa, founder of Enough Labs, and I am so excited that you're here. I'm an empowerment coach, gender equality advocate, motivational speaker, and a goal-crushing boss. And this show is your guide to all things confidence, mindset, growth, and resilience, all in the spirit of helping you to embrace how enough you truly are. Myself and some incredible guests will be coming to you each week to drop some gems. The goal is to offer you the space in creating a vision that supports you in your relationships, creating work-life balance, and be more aligned with your truth. Our mission is to help you do all of this while embracing how enough you already are and embodying the essence of joy, abundance, and permission every step of the way. Consider me your personal coach through these episodes and think of me as your confidant, your ally, and most importantly, your sister friend. Are you ready? Let's get started. We are back with another exciting episode of Embracing Enough, the podcast brought to you by Enough Labs. And I am sitting out on a gorgeous April day with my dear, dear friend, Najia. I am so grateful to have her on the podcast today with us. We are actually at this very moment sitting out in her backyard, enjoying this finally warmer weather here in D.C., and I'm just grateful to have her here. She's actually gotten me through many a moments throughout the past year with this gorgeous backyard <laughs> to enjoy just a quiet moment. So thank you, Nijia, for being on the podcast. Thanks. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. And as you can hear, there's three dogs right now on the patio. One, one is yours, one is mine, and one is my sister's, who I have the the joy and luck of puppy sitting. So this is going to be fun. Three dogs. Listen, <laughs> here at Embracing Enough, we we are all about embracing whatever is happening. Okay? It's all about the imperfections. So it's no mistake that we're actually having you on the podcast today. For all of you who are not aware, April is actually Arab American Heritage Month. And so excited to be able to share more about the recognition of that month and celebrating Arab American achievements. Um, and Najia, your background, you, you identify as Arab American. That's right. So here, you know, like I said, we're all about telling our stories. So why don't we start off there? Who are you, Najia? Tell us your story. Uh, I never know how to answer who I am, but I can tell you what I, I know, um, you know, what I know about myself in terms of like, I guess, facts, facts for the moment. But um, so I come from a huge family for six, uh, my mom had six kids and I was then the fourth. So right in the middle, um, and being part of a big family was great. Um, very interesting. And I think being the middle child, I had to like, you know, maybe voice myself a little louder than the youngest or the eldest just to make sure I was heard. Mm. Um, but I also grew up with a lot of cousins, um, an insane amount of cousins, like we could literally have our own country. We were just like insanely huge. And um, 
I grew up both in the Middle East and here uh, and back and forth and uh, really grew up in a, in a world that I feel like was so unique. Maybe it resonates with some Americans of uh, first generation Americans, but I grew up in a small microcosm of an Arab American, not even Arab American, I'll just say like Yemeni Arab um, community in, in Montgomery County, Maryland where um, we were actually, there, there wasn't a lot of Arab Americans that we knew were Arabs in Montgomery County per se, but um, my dad had followed his brother um, to Maryland, to Bethesda, because his brother had fallen in love and wanted to marry someone um, who lived there. And it literally brought my dad, his brother, and all the cousins, you know, all over there, yeah. And then we went to um, a, a, a school that was really mainly Arab and Muslim. So my entire upbringing, I would say, was very <laughs> closed off and sheltered. Um, and it wasn't until I feel I entered college that I entered the American experience of having other cultures or other religions, um, you know, uh, to live uh, among with. So it's very different. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if that answers who I am per se, but um, I feel like the Arab American part, I, I, I came into probably recognition much later. Mm. Growing up, I felt I was much more um, identified more with the Arab or the Yemeni side being um, in that community where everyone was sort of similar. Mm. Um, and most of the Arabs in the area live in Northern Virginia, We were, but we all went to school in Northern Virginia, so we always crossed the river to get to the other side. Um, but, you know, as I got older, I used to always say when I was a kid, oh, the Americans do this and the Americans do that as if I was an American because to me, American was at the time what we watched on TV, which was predominantly, you know, um, white. Mm -hmm. um, and very little uh, like uh, recognition or visual representation. Representation, that's a better word, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but what makes things even funnier is that I'm actually, so my mom is not Arab. She's Norwegian, German, American from Minnesota, but she immersed herself into the Arab culture and Muslim culture, really. She had converted before she met my dad. Um, and you know, it was I had forgotten so many times who my mom was, where, 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 she, where she was from. Like even though she was blonde and blue eyes, um, because of my cousins all being the same, um, we didn't really. I, I don't know. I don't feel like I touched. Uh, wasn't as close to that part of me, which is a little bit strange to say. Um, but anyway, like the, it's a long way of saying that it wasn't until college, until later, um, where I realized, oh wait, I'm I'm both, mm. and. I lived in this country, and I have the same rights, and why did I feel that way? This is ridiculous. And now I'm like, hell yeah, I'm American. Yeah, you know, like and I'm Arab, and I'm many things. But, and I feel like I have, I, I'm entitled to all the same rights and representation and, and whatnot. But it's weird. It's weird to think that when I grew up, I didn't think that. I think it's like really fascinating about how today, where you stand, you can embrace and fully appreciate all parts of yourself right yeah and where we find ourselves immersed whatever context whatever school whatever environment it mm -hmm. really shapes how we view ourselves and how we belong mm -hmm. right and so talk to us about what college was like you know the the stark sort of you know difference of what how you were growing up and then you're then there's all of this exposure yeah so i mean and we actually have something in common we both went yes, to american university that's right. i knew who you were you didn't know me <laughs> <laughs> i was like who's dina she's cool um so yeah um but i mean high school or school in general i went to um a school uh that was 
you know, it had a Muslim or Islamic curriculum, but it adhered to Fairfax County curriculum as well. And it was an all-girls school, but half of the building was all girls, half of the building was all boys. And, you know, I had a cohort of 40 girls in my class. Very small, very safe, um, very class diverse, um, but religiously we were all Muslim. But I had, you know, classmates from Morocco, Sudan, Ethiopia, to Saudi Arabia, Palestine. Uh, I mean, literally everything um, from the Muslim world. It was pretty cool that way, I think. And it gave us, like, a really cool perspective that way. But... Um, because it was small and insular, I didn't really do a lot of like good college prep. I didn't learn a lot about like American civics or voter rights or like, I don't know, American history. Um, it was cool from like a cultural, religious and um, societal, sociological really, like laboratory for our own introspective world. But then coming into the US, uh, sorry, even I always say coming to the US because college was coming to the US for me. Really, it was, it. you know, like, because I came and everyone's like, you have an accent. Where are you from? I mean, I did grow up a little bit in Saudi, in, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, um, too. But, um, you know, it would, and I was always taken back. I'm like, I have an accent. Why? You know, and I could never hear it. But people would tell me that. Um, so college was, you know, you had a girl who was in, in an all girls school. You know, boys were like, haram, don't get around them. You know, you can't talk to them. So you put me in a college, and all of a sudden, I'm with in co-ed classes. Um, extreme critical thinking at American University. My worldview expanded. I met so many cool people. And I was instantly drawn to anything and everything that wasn't my own culture or my own anything. I just wanted to expand that. So most of my friends, I think early on, um, with the exception of one of my dear friends, um, who I'm still very close to, who's um, Lebanese-Kuwaiti, um, you know, we're, we're from Latin America. Uh, you know, I had African-American friends, Nigerian, uh, lots of Latin America, actually, and some European friends. It was really cool that way. Um, but um, yeah, I just wasn't prepared for it. And I remember there was a moment in my English lit class, and I was feeling insecure, a girl, you know, coming into college, or, uh, it was an English lit class, I was making it on my own, and, um, and everyone was going around the room, the professor had asked, where do you all live? And everyone was like, oh, I live in this hall, or that hall, or this hall, and they all lived on campus. So I didn't live on campus. That was another way that I had to transition into the real world. I lived at home. I went to American University, and it was just down the street from my parents' house. By down the street, I mean like maybe a 25 minute commute, but you know what I mean. Um, and um, being there, you know, I uh, felt like safe enough, yet I was dipping my toes into a bigger world. And the professor had asked us, and so I went around and said, I live off campus. And instantly, people were looking at me like, oh, who's this girl? She lives off campus, she's a freshman. And these two guys were like elbowing one another, and I was like, oh, and they were, they were like, oh, we want to talk to you after class. I was like, oh, me? This is so cool. Like, what is it about me? And it didn't realize it until after the class, they wanted to know which apartment I lived in so that they could then use my house to throw a party. And I said, they're just like, so, so where do you live exactly? And I'm like, oh, at my parents. And at that moment, they went, oh, and walked away. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, we all roll it. This is not a cool thing to say, you know? But these are the things you learn about, like, America, right? And, like, what's cool and what's not cool. It's not cool to live with your parents when you're in college. But whatever. I did, and I loved it, so whatever. <laughs> yeah. I would love to, I mean, I know that we have actually talked about this quite a bit, and I'm curious if you could share with the listeners what your experience was like. These are the dogs, yeah. folks. Yeah. Um, what was the experience going to high school amongst only girls? Do you feel like that, even when you talk to your to your girlfriends about their experience, what what did it feel like in, in high school? Did, did it feel like there was that 
competition or those confidence issues or did it like you mentioned just earlier that it felt really safe you know to me honestly I, I, I felt safer in that environment yeah. uh, an all-girls school I know it could be like catty and there okay. were moments I'm sure that like there were, there were clicks and um, backbiting and gossiping but because we were all girls in a very small cohort um, I, I didn't I felt that it was a much more secure way and I've heard studies like I've seen studies where all girls do better in all the girls classrooms whereas boys do worse in all boys I've seen that I don't know if it's still relevant in yeah. 2021 I don't know um, but it was good for me I don't know that I would do that for my daughter per se but um, I, I'm not one to like look back and say I wish I could have had it differently I feel like it's shaped who I am today mm. and I'm good with it love it you know love it yeah. so who you are today, yeah. you know, based off of your experience growing up, your experience in college. Talk to us about what you actually do today for work and, and what inspired you to get into that. Yeah, um, so, okay, so today I, I f I'm an international development professional. I focus on um, work and supporting the Middle East, mainly on um, improving um, institutions in the Middle East to perform better, uh, mainly around governance. So. Um, helping uh, governments um, better represent the citizens and provide better services is like maybe a very basic way yeah, of describing love it. that. Yeah. Um, and I was really drawn into getting into inter international development because of uh, where my dad's from and where you know we identified as being Yemeni, um, knowing that the needs were so great and having traveled and living in the Middle East. Um, when I would go back, I'd be like, oh my gosh, th there needs to be so many things in here. And, you know, really seeing what we took for granted growing up in America. Um, not to say that one's better than the other, but at least infrastructure or institutions-wise, um, you know, I was very drawn to, to, to like giving back to that origin or that heritage. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I got drawn into international development and I pursued a career in it. And uh, sometimes I question, you know, what I'm doing and whether or not it's a form of neocolonialism mm -hmm. or am I doing the right thing and who am I representing? And, um, am I really helping um, the world be a better place? But all you can do is try with the right intentions. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And you know, you and I have talked about this at length over the years. And I think what I have taken from being an international development professional for so long is actually not the big impact that we tell ourselves we're having. Mm -hmm. I've actually been more impacted just from the stories and the conversations that I've had with individuals that I've gotten a chance to meet and work with. That's really been yeah. like the, and I, I, I wonder, I'm just curious what your experience has been just because of obviously your ties to the region, what you love about the culture, what you love about all of all of the development, you know, the entire development process, how, how it feels to be giving back in that way. Yeah, I mean, I will say hands down, this is very cliche, but it's so true, is the warm hospitality mm -hmm. of the Arab people and it really can go like I mean you could see that in Morocco all the way to Oman or Yemen or Saudi like universally it, there are hospitable warm people and even the immigrants uh, that came over to whether it's the, the US or Europe still hold on to that I mean I remember um, in college I would bring a lot of my AU friends over my parents house to have like feasts and dinners just to, so they could feel close to home and 
you know, I was often let down when I felt that other cultures wouldn't give um, the same way. I'm like, oh, or so-and-so is not as warm or, you know, I don't feel like so-and-so's parents is welcoming me or, you know, um, but, uh, you know, doing development work in the Middle East, it's, I've constantly felt that and I'm so drawn mm. by it, the warmth of, of really the Arab people. It's a, a huge misrepresentation in media and of being angry or um, vengeful. I hate it. Um, because really at the depth of all of it, people just want to live a dignified life. Um, and I'm, it always amazes me how resilient the Arab people are in the face of so much uh, you know, turmoil and challenge. Um, and, uh, and they still maintain hospitality, no matter what. I have had the pleasure to be <laughs> able to travel with you in the Middle East, specifically yes, yes. in Egypt mm-hmm. and Morocco. No, no. oh, and right. wait, and Jordan. And Jordan, that's Wait, did right. we do Jordan? We didn't do Jordan together. No. I thought we did. I don't think we did. Gosh, isn't that horrible? Yeah, oh gosh, I don't know. But yeah, Morocco, that's right. That was fun. These Morocco stories, and Cairo. Oh, these gosh. stories. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember a night that we went out to dinner in Cairo on this beautiful restaurant that sadly doesn't exist anymore. What was it called? Sephora? Sequoia. Sequoia. Yeah, yeah. And we fought for the bill. Oh, gosh, that's right. <laughs> that's because the, the Italian in you exactly. is like, you know, there. The, the warmth is there, right? Um, and, and we were just talking about this before we hit record. The fact that my name is Dina is traditionally a name that you may find in North Africa and different parts yeah. of the Middle East. So a lot of times people would mistake me from being from the region, which at times kind of worked for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love, I love the warm hospitality, and uh, it's absolutely in those times that we've been able to share experiences of travel. That's right. It's so clear. It is, yeah. And, and the insanity at times of it. At <laughs> <laughs> very hot-blooded yeah yeah that's true that's true oh good times but um well given that it's arab american heritage month too i mean it it goes beyond your work in development i mean you have i've really appreciated your perspective and your opinions of really turning me on to great writers from the region Mm -hmm. great stories movies tv shows i mean Talk to me about what you're feeling in your you know, sort of in this moment for Arab Americans and and the representation that we do see today. Yeah, so you know we, I mean, depending on which wave, um, a lot of like the the um, Levant, so like the Syrian, Palestinian, Lebanese um, immigrants that came to America early in the 20th century or the even late um, 19th century. Um, I think had an easier time blending in and then there were the latecomers um, who a lot of them were Muslim um, but coming in 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 the 80s and 70s and 60s and some still till today right Um, I think it's it's being first generation it's been fun to see that you know while growing up I didn't really see much representation other than Casey Kasem and I didn't even know who Casey Kasem was. I was today years old when you told Casey Kasem was. He, well, it's his is, Kasem is Qasem in Arabic, yeah. So he's I think Lebanese or maybe Syrian. I don't even know exactly which. Country. I know Casey Kasem yeah. from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Had no idea. Yeah, so you know that was like, oh, okay. There's Casey Kasem. Nineties kid, clearly. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that, but then it wasn't like. You know, I, ha- I hate to admit this, but I'll admit it. I used to watch Nano Two and Same. And I, I look back, I'm like, why the heck I. Nothing about 90210 was relatable. Not from like who I was as an adolescent girl or who I became as a woman or 
who they were, their life, nothing, no story, no part of it was. So what drew you in, do you think? I don't know. Yeah. I was addicted. And same I would love to same. Like, I think I would love to analyze that, right? But, you know, and then I Another got... Another podcast like, episode. Right? <laughs> Nana to now, why we all were addicted. But, like, and, and it wasn't until, like, later on um, where I realized, why have I not watched enough shows? And I was so tired of tokenism. Like, okay, there's the one, you know, um, black character. There's the one Latino character. And then sometimes those portrayals are really annoying. Um, and, you know, if there was more than one, then it became that, that show that was other than, you know, became like a niche show. I mean, now that's changed, and um, it's, it's honestly, like, right now, it's the most exciting time um, because a lot of those new entertainers are my age, and they're crushing it. So, like, you know, um, Rami Malek winning the Oscar. That was huge. That was huge. I was like, okay, he's cool. Egyptian, Coptic, you know, first generation. Um, and know. also so relatable. So relatable. The story, you don't have to be from the region or understanding. Oh, I'm talking about uh, Rami Malik from the guy that did Qu- uh, Queen, uh, Freddie right. Matt. Was oh my it? gosh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, but then Rami Yusuf and Emmy. Yeah, Rami yeah, Yusuf, yeah. Sorry. Rami Yusuf yeah. also. Totally relatable. Yeah. I was watching a show, um, you know, he won an Emmy, that, like, a show about Muslim Americans, and I kept thinking to myself, but how are Americans that are not Muslim or not, how are they going to really relate to We this? talked about that. Yeah. I yeah. was like, are they going to find this interesting? Because I found it all interesting. I was like, this shit is good, you know? And I just, like, I wondered, okay, is this just for us? But, you know, when he won that Emmy, mm. I was like, things are changing. Like, the, the, the representation, hopefully, will change. Um, and there's, it's exciting to see the talent. And even noticing his sister on the show, May, um, you know, she uh, did a fantastic job. And I think, yeah, I think it's an exciting time because, um, you know, for, for Arabs, but also even non-Arabs, like Muslim Americans, Riz Ahmed, for instance, who I, like, adore, or Hassan Minhaj, there's all these entertainers now um, and actors and, um, you know, people in media that are really, you know, getting out there um, and representing, I think, the community in a way that wasn't there. Absolutely. So I'm excited, like, even for my daughter and, and my nieces and nephews, for them to see to watch television enjoy in a way that I couldn't. You know, being in America, they'll have a different way of looking at TV and media. So beautiful. Um, yeah. And I love what you're, you know, what I hear you saying is really at its core, at its essence, it's storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it's a unique ability to tell stories through the lenses of people who get it, who, who can sort of straddle both worlds and communicate it in a way that's really accessible yeah. and frankly entertaining as yeah. well. Right? And I think like the immigrant experience, it's, I hate to say that everyone in America, unless you're a native, everyone was an immigrant. Thank you. Right? <laughs> so, but I, I think the immigrant, ex- there is a thread there of like coming to the new land, uh, trying to understand who you are, your role, uh, trying to assimilate. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up where we were actually discouraged from assimilating. You know, and but you know, looking back, I think that was a good thing because it makes us unapologetically who we are. Like, why? Because what does assimilating mean? What is the American experience? Who is predominantly? What's that narrative? You know, For sure. Um, and it allows you to be so rooted in your identity. Yeah. 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 So interesting. All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a break here <laughs> okay. and enjoy the fabulous spread that you've laid out for us in that traditional hospitable way. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right. And give these dogs a chance to bark. <laughs> All right, we're back 
finally the dogs have calmed down. <laughs> Mine is sitting in Najia's lap. Let's hope that he stays that way for the rest of the episode. We were just reminiscing, uh, Najia and I, around how we actually met and, um, you know, some of these crazy stories that we had in our travels. We've actually also had non-work travel, too. We've actually mm -hmm. spent a weekend in Paris and yes. you know, London, and London yeah. right? So fun. Yeah. So we'll leave that for another podcast as well. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, I met you at a, a company that we both worked at. And you were really the model for me, frankly. I don't know if I've truly said this to you before. I feel like I have. No, you haven't. And okay. I'm looking at you dumbfounded. Okay. Here's <laughs> like, the <what>? thing. <laughs> for all of you listening, Najia at this company that we both worked for was really a trailblazer. She had negotiated a oh. role within the company to work remotely from Dubai. Dubai. Yeah. And having that opportunity and watching you do it, watching you negotiate it successfully, created you know, a precedent for myself who was able to go in and negotiate to be a gender advisor and working overseas from France. Mm -hmm. you, you were the first. Yeah. But I was the first woman, but there was a guy before me who did it. I forget where he was going to telework from. Maybe it was Boston or something. And I thought, if he can do it, why can't I? See? Um, and, um, but it was different. Mine was an overseas ass. Right. You know? But, you know, at the time, it was, what, 2011? Which was way before the, now that we're working yeah. remotely and it's totally normal. It's but so, so many people were uncomfortable with it. They were. And I was like, haven't I proven myself? Like, I'm working hard. You're going to get your deliverable. You're going to get the end product. Can it's we like, pause for a trust. second? Haven't I proved myself? Yeah. Can we talk about why the fact that we yeah. need to prove ourselves I know, I know. in the workplace? Yeah. But anyways. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And then, you know, the two years and a half of that came back and I was like, yep, here I am. Coming back to y'all. Thanks for letting me work two years and a half away. You didn't lose me. <laughs> and here I am. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, from not only that experience, but the course of your career, what's one thing that you are really proud of when you look back? You know, sometimes I, um, I bang my head against a wall for like how hard I worked or how much like um, how many hours I put in or uh, how stressed out I was sometimes I look back and I'm like oh why did I do that to myself over what it's and I used to remind myself like you know all these endeavors you're not working for your family's company you're not working for your own self uh, your, your own company but the thing that I was most proud of is um, you know in the end of the day like I could have run I know this sounds like again to an American you know, entrepreneurial spirit. It's like, oh, no, of course that's not the default. But I could have gone back to my family's house and been like, that was hard out there in the real world. Like, I'm just going to hang out here and recharge. But I never did that. I felt like my parents gave me the foundation and the basis to be who I had to be. And when I went out to the workplace, I decided I'm just going to give it my all, you know. And, I, and I, I, I'm proud of that. Like, I'm proud of how hard I worked because it made me also a lot more confident yeah. to, like, um, not uh, rely on um, the default, the comfort zone, and just make it on my own. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say working hard and then um, and and growing from that each time, and and really pushing myself to get out of my comfort zone a lot, constantly. Yeah, that's something to be hugely proud of. So interesting. You know, I think back to the times that we worked together, and again 
another testimony of how people were really looking up to you at that company. You were the youngest senior executive at the C-suite at that company. C-suite. The C-suite, right? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was a, yeah, I, I'm. I Why do you laugh? I know. It's true. I mean, it, well, because it was a, like, we were a, a group that was like part of a, we were smaller, I don't want to subsidiary, we were a group within a large Fortune 500. Very true. And yes, I was maybe a senior in that part of the company. But you're right. I mean, I won't, yeah, there was that. Um, Let's not downplay our achievements. Yeah, that's right, that's right. What were you (laughs) going to say? Sorry, I'm going to let you talk. I'm going to let you ask. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) But I, I, all of this is to say that it was a huge accomplishment. And I'm curious to know, you know, we both have worked in the international development field. It's long hours. It's Mm -hmm you know, nights and weekends at times. Um, writing proposals. Writing proposals. Oh, I don't a miss lot, that. A lot of proving yourself in, like, a lot of different ways. Yeah. And so I'm curious, would you give yourself any advice based off of what you know now over the course of your career? Like, if you could go back to a different point in your career, would you give yourself some yeah. advice? You know, there's one thing, and it's a sensitive subject, but it just came to me right now, actually. Um how do I put this? You know, like I, uh, I, I got into the workforce. I worked really hard, but looking back and hearing a lot about the Me Too movement and sexual harassment, I can't even tell you how many times when I look back, I realize incidents mm-hmm. of sexual harassment mm-hmm. and just extremely uncomfortable and inappropriate moments and how at the time, because I felt like, oh, you're 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 lucky you have this job and you're working well. Just like, Ooh. just keep it in, like keep moving forward. You're gonna keep going forward. You're gonna keep, but how detrimental that was. Mm-hmm. And and then you know, it wasn't until I switched, um, you know, uh, jobs in the sense of like what I'm doing now and and, um, and the place that I work now that really protects that, um, that I realized, oh my gosh, like, I wish I, although I was really good about defending myself against like. Um, you know, opportunities that weren't like, if I felt like someone was wronging me for my promotion or I wanted to advocate myself, I thought I was really good on that front. But if an inappropriate comment was said to me uh, about my looks or, or you know, any, any sexual innuendos, I would sort of turn a blind eye or look the other way and mm-hmm. swallow it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, had the same comment been made about my age or like how I was too young and I couldn't be in that role, I would like fight it fiercely, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I have no problems being direct and, and confrontational. But when it came to this, I don't know why I paused so many times, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do, I, it's like, and maybe a cop out to say, oh, because, you know, you know, but there weren't that many people who had my name doing what I was doing. And I felt like I don't want to mess it up. Mm-hmm. Um, which is bad, you know? So I wish I could tell my younger self, like, but, you know, I have to say, like, this is a horrible message, but would have, you know, at the time, if I spoke up, would that have hurt? Maybe it would have hurt my career, but it would have helped protect me more. Mm. I don't know. We we don't, we didn't have, we we were still fighting the safeguards in the workplace. We're still trying to push for that. I don't even think the safeguards were properly communicated when we started in the field, you know, in in this industry. And I think there was an undercurrent of, inappropriate behavior and comments that sure there was a sexual harassment policy in place but mm-hmm. there wasn't a conversation yeah that was going along with it there what and I don't I I'm so grateful to you that you've shared that with us today because I think we can of course we can go back and and tell our younger selves that it would be okay but the context in which we were working exactly. in exactly didn't necessarily yeah 
allow for that. No, yeah. there, there weren't others that we were looking around to who were modeling the behavior that would say to us at a younger age that it was okay to speak out. Exactly. And it's true. I think we are of a certain age <laughs> that we came up in this in this industry where the predominant thinking was you should be grateful yeah. to have a job here. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I offer to you to not experience any kind of beat up. Yeah. I just think it's unfortunate because of the environment and you know, the reason I give to most things that are wrong, the patriarchy. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, yeah. Who was in control at most of these, yep. you know, institutions? Yep, for sure. Absolutely. And yeah. and they set the tone for leadership and what was permissible, what was allowed, what mm -hmm. was acceptable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I think I would, I wish I could tell my younger self, like, I, I think there were instances where I wish I did fight back, you know? I, I, or, Same. Or, I think there were. Um you know, I, I was never put in a horrific place. I will say that, but a, a lot of extremely uncomfortable places. Yeah. Like just extremely uncomfortable. And I, I mean, I I don't know a woman that hasn't. Yeah. It, it, why? And you let know? it be known here, and I will always speak out about this that it's abhorrent that these types of experiences go happen in the yeah. workplace. That yeah. we even have to be subjected to it, or even have the conversation with ourselves. Should I speak out about it exactly, or, or, or exactly. should I just keep it under wraps and just act like it's not a big deal? Yeah, exactly. How much burying women do at the office Yeah. because yeah. of it? I mean, yeah. I still remember that TV show that you made me watch. What was it called? The one that showed the workplace in the 80s? Oh, gosh, I love that one. Black <laughs> Monday on Showtime <laughs> with Don Cheadle. <laughs> and I think we forget, how, yeah. not to say, like, how good we have it. Yeah, no. yeah. No, but we are, issues, we are progressing. But... We are. I, th I always like to think that way. Like, there are step I hope backs. so. There's always, like, a step <laughs> backward, two steps forward. I don't know. I have to tell myself that. There's definitely so much more work to be done. But I definitely think it's much better than I was yeah. through my mom's time or my yeah. aunt's time or my older sister. Like, I think it does <laughs> get better. But this is where I still feel like... <laughs> There's still so much work to be done. And yeah. there's still so many more conversations that need to be had. Absolutely. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Well, to switch gears a little bit, you know, the, a lot of the work that I talk about through Enough Labs is around self-trust. It's around self-trust. And <laughs> the idea that, you know, we've all faced major decisions in our lives if not many, you know, that have resulted in us choosing to take either a left turn instead of going right. And these are pivotal moments. They can reveal a ton about our journey. I'm just curious, what do you think that moment or moments were for you that you may have decided to choose to take a left turn instead of the right? Yeah, you know, again, um, I feel like the American experience is about you know, the melting pot and fusing and meeting other cultures and people, which is beautiful. Um, but for me at the time, my left turn would have definitely been who I'm married to now. Um, we live in Capitol Hill, which is, you know, dog central. Well, the alleyway, the alleyway is crazy. Um, we've literally, yeah, I'm like holding two dogs as I speak right now to keep them under control. <laughs> but um, this is what so, we do. Yeah, you know, I married someone um, who I met at AU. AU, like American University, I have to give it a huge shout out um, because I, I met some amazing people in my life there. But, um, you know, I was certain that I was going to marry from within the culture. 
and that it would all be uh, familiar. And it never occurred to me, like how naive, right? Like that I would, um, you know, meet someone, an American, an Italian American, right? And lo and behold, you know, um, I made a left turn. My right turn, where I thought I was going, was definitely within the community, within within the confines of what I was used to and that I would keep the legacy going on. Um, you know, um, the bloodlines. Um, but, but yeah, no, the left turn was that I, I married out. And then like, okay, in America, it's like, okay, so what's the big deal? Like, but for us, like, like I trace my family name like 700 years, you know, I can have a family tree with 700 years. And I, we keep thinking about like, oh, okay, so and my dad married out and then I married out. And then my daughter's now only a quarter, a quarter Yemeni. Like, who is she? You know, um, does she, I know she's gonna have her own story, but it's not my story. Maybe that's okay. Anyhow, all this uh, is like a long way of saying that the, my marriage and who I fell in love with uh, ultimately was my was my left turn. You know, was not expected at all. And here I am, you know, ten years later. Um, yeah. Can we ask? Was it was it an easy decision? I mean, I recall the time that we were on the high speed train between London and Paris, and you told me the full story. And I won't say, you know, obviously this is a short podcast; we can't sit here for hours yeah, telling. But, yeah. you know, what what was the journey to meeting Carson, and what that was like as your throughout your courtship? Yeah, I mean, um, so he was friends with my cousin first, and. Um, and he was like, you know, deeply interested in the faith uh, uh, in, 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 in the Middle East and had traveled there and I, I really taken on the language. So he was a little bit of an anomaly in itself. Like, it wasn't like I married a, hey man, I'm Brad from Wisconsin. I really like you. you know, Which, I, no problem with that. Yeah, you know, of course. That, like, that, <laughs> but okay, about. okay, like I couldn't. Like maybe this is even closer. Maybe I can. But the point was, is like, you know, baby steps, right? Like, right. I'm not going to go from, like, yeah, man, that's cool culture. You speak Arabic? Whoa. Like, I couldn't do that. <laughs> so, like, it was someone who was familiar and um, really, under like, cared. Cared for the people and the culture and the religion and everything. So, I think um, that made a difference, ultimately. I had Huge. to, you know? I mean, and in a way, today, as I watch the both of you, he fits so beautifully into your family and vice versa, that yeah. there's such a deep appreciation for mm -hmm. each other's culture. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, hailing from the Italian-American <laughs> background. Yeah, the big families, the loud, the, the, the meals. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there, you know, um, for sure, for sure. It's yeah. easy. Yeah. So he was your right turn. Uh, yeah. Rather, he was your left, left turn. turn. Yeah. So which, you know, after several years of both living and working in Dubai and having both both of you having these incredible international careers and now you're a mom to beautiful Sumi. Um, curious to know what keeps you up at night when you think about the woman that she'll become? You know, one of the things I grapple with is confidence um, and identity. And I think um, we all have insecurities and we have things that we're confident um, with but um, I have this thing in me I don't know if it's uh, nature or nurture where I always believed in myself so I could always I kept myself going um, and I, I can attribute that to maybe my mom having six kids and I had to really figure out my own way and she was she never really meddled to say you couldn't do this or you can't she was always like okay you want to do that you can do that she always let me be um, so I really like that it's but beautiful. for Sumeya I often wonder 
like can I nurture her enough in the same way so that she could be confident and then just to reinforce that in her um, but also I think I would be sad and maybe maybe this is less important in the in the scheme of the world if we're all truly one people right but like if she didn't identify at mm-hmm. all with with my heritage mm-hmm. um, you know I'm raising her with a lot of the tenets of Islam it's a very important to us and she knows like all about fasting and, and caring for the poor um, and you know the more um, just like the, the gentle and, and kind message um, that I was brought up with. And then I also want her to understand our family history and the struggle that we had in trying to push for democracy in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that my father and, 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 and my grandfather, really my grandfather who passed away for, for that reason. Um, and so I think I don't want her to ever lose that mm-hmm. because I find that, you know, once you become like third or fourth generation, it's like, it's gone. And maybe that's beautiful. Maybe that's part of the American experience, but I don't know. I feel like there's, it's it's both beautiful and sad and i don't know where we'll end up like are we gonna end up here are we gonna end up abroad like who knows who knows like you know i never thought that this was um it for me that Mm. like that's it this is where my roots are and this is where i'll be forever but um maybe it is maybe it's not um but for her i don't want her to lose that thread that history Mm. because you know i feel like culture is very much the language you speak the food that you cook the the people you think you have to keep it alive um, through language and food and like there's a lot to it and so I, I want her to have that mm. um yeah it's the soul of your family it's the yeah, soul of yeah, your heritage yeah. and whether it be you throwing on music <laughs> from your favorite Yemeni artist or I'm mostly I listen to like Egyptian Lebanese okay. also a lot of Khaliji music like okay. from the Gulf yeah but it's true I know what you're saying like I still love Arabic music like, and you can yeah. celebrate it with her and she can get excited yes. about it because yeah. you're excited. Yeah. I, and I think yeah. you can hold both. I think there's an experience where Sumi's going to step into her identity yeah. very strongly. I have no doubt about that. And then I think she's also going to have, I could be wrong, but I also see this beautiful embrace with the culture and of both of her parents and mm-hmm. how like how beautiful of a model is that to just see. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if we're really being cliche here, that should be the American experience. Yeah, yeah. Of seeing children who can appreciate the diversity of what this country was built on. That's true. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the most beautiful sight mm-hmm. to America. Like, recognizing that, of course, it came at the cost of of the Native people, right? Like, of this course. wasn't... That's what we all take for granted. Yeah. This wasn't... You know, we've all come to make our lives here but at, the, yeah. at a major cost I yeah. mean it came generations before us but um, you know I think for those that continue to come and for those that are here and for what it is right now today that is that's the part of it that at least you know sets America apart yeah yeah absolutely yeah well Najia I have learned new things from you through this conversation I have reminisced on old stories <laughs> <laughs> we we connected over our love inter- of international development and and shifted and transitioned into our love of really amazing fashion and great facial products <laughs> to also like navigating the twists and turns of the last year with the pandemic yeah. and really being there for one another and, and reminding each other that we could get through this Absolutely. and to be really present. Yeah. And I've admired watching you hold it down in your career and being a mom and navigating all of it in between. Yeah, well, it's friends like you, <laughs> friends and family, and, you know, really, that it's the, it's the close-knit community that mm. keeps you getting through this 
Uh, trying times, but For I sure. get vaccinated on Tuesday. Thank God. So. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're coming up on Ramadan, yes. and you'll be celebrating as a family, which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll close it off then. And I will well, I will say before we close it out, I am still hoping, hoping to be invited to an iftar. Okay, <laughs> done, easy. Okay. I would love so, that. So here on the show, I always ask each of my guests what the title of this podcast actually means to them. So embracing enough, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I think it's uh, a good question. I think, you know, Again, it's very hard to get into identity politics, but I think I'm, I'm going to say I'm unapologetically who I am, whether it's a hyphenated identity or one identity or the other. Like It may evolve, it may change, but um, that's enough. However I decide to identify myself for the moment is enough. Mm. That's it. Beautiful. Yeah. And to all of the little girls who might be listening, who might have hyphenated identities, yeah. what would you say to them? I would say... If they may be struggling in, in their identity and looking to embrace it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I will say I didn't grow up in a in a, in a a high school that was or a school that wasn't diverse where I was the one token something, which I think is much harder than, than what I went through, I will say. But I'll say, you know, America is diverse. It's It comes many religions, many cultures, and it's something to celebrate. And if people are afraid of that... Um, that's that's something that they're gonna have to get comfortable with because this is a diverse country and it has to be if we're gonna succeed <laughs> I couldn't yeah. agree more thank you so much for this interview Najia thank you all for listening and until next time Bye, boo.